Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello friends and listeners and welcome to a new show episode 8 of season 9 of the Thos Hermes podcast. Today is November the 6th, a few days just after Halloween and it is a great great pleasure for me to have John Michael Greer back here on the podcast. The title of the episode is a new fellowship and yes we're going to talk about the new fellowship that he has created that he is um, following and well following his creation of course we'll talk about all that in a minute uh, for the moment it's a pleasure to welcome you all who are here on the show as my listeners it's great to have you back on the show it's great to have you here for the first time and as always I want want to point you to a few things, especially on our website. The website is thoshermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. There you find all the episodes we have done so far, over 147, 48 now available at the moment. And um, you will find that that's the most important thing, the show notes to all those episodes with links, with information, with photos. So it's a great resource for everybody. Uh, my friend Carl Abramson called it almost an encyclopedia. Well, thank you, Carl. Uh, great to have that remark from you. Um, I uh, would also like to point you to the contact sheet there on the website. You can send me a direct message if you wish. And I always, as you know by now, I love your feedback and I try to answer everybody who writes to me. And we have not only a contact form there, but we have also a voicemail on the Thoughts Hermes website where you can leave me voicemail and speak if you prefer speaking to writing. But of course, there are possibilities to leave comments on Facebook, on uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on YouTube. And you can also send me an ordinary email, info at thoshermes.com. While you're there, please consider becoming a patron. We need patrons like those who already are patrons. And once again, I would like to thank all of you who are supporters of this show already and who uh, make this show possible by their support. So, we just need a few more, to be honest. Uh, times are not getting easier for everyone I know, um, but it's the same is true for your favorite podcast. So please consider becoming one of those who support this show for the many, many others who do not yet support the show. Well, yeah, maybe some of them will now think about it and become supporters as well. As you know, um, we also always play music here. And as you know, I'm quite eclectic about music. My personal background, those of you who listened to that episode 
uh, where Carl Abrahamson interviewed me. Yes, that exists. Even that we done at the end of season eight. Um, you know that I, my personal background is in performing arts and in classical music and opera. And today, well, no, no singing, no singing, but um, opera is again also here on the musical menu. Also, because I remember many years back, even before this podcast existed, so that must be seven or eight years back in my first email conversations I had shyly with John Michael Greer, who always replied very nicely when I contacted him. We found out that we were both lovers of Richard Wagner's operas. And um, so I thought, well, why not play some Wagner here today? And something which is really nice is orchestral only. It's the end of his opera, The Valkyrie. No, it's not the right of the Valkyries. That's earlier in the same opera, but that's the end. It's called the Magic Fire Music, so the Feuerzauber in German. Magic Fire Music, the immolation. No, it's not the immolation scene, sorry. I am. That's another opera by Wagner. It is the final scene, the Magic Fire Music, um, uh, which we are going to hear now in an interpretation by and arrangement, I must say, because um, that's why there is no singing, an arrangement by the great Leopold Stokowski. Some of you who know a bit about classical music know who Leopold Stokowski was, a great American conductor who arranged a lot of music for orchestral versions, and that's what he did with the Wagner piece we are going to hear now. So without further ado, let's listen to the magic fire music from Richard Wagner's Valkyrie with an arrangement by Leopold Stokowski. Enjoy!
Feuerzauber from the Opera Die Valkyrie by Richard Wagner. So that's Magic Fire Music from Opera Valkyrie, the Valkyrie by Richard Wagner, an arrangement by Leopold Stokowski. Sound like a professional radio moderator. Well, I did some of that earlier in the classical field. Yes, I did. Okay, but that's not the point here. Now the point is meeting John Michael Greer. And John Michael Greer, it's actually his fourth time that he is on the show here. And that makes me really happy and proud, to be honest, because he's such a great man and such a prolific writer, which who um, whose books are really among the leading books in the field of occultism, I believe. And I am quite sure many of you share my opinion. And he is, of course, also, well, I don't know if I should call him an, an ecology activist. I don't know if that's the right term, whatever. You go to his website, Ecosophia, and you'll find out all about it yourself. And I love reading those Ecosophia bits and pieces that he writes there on that blog. There's also an Ecosophia dreamwits.org. I will link that, of course, on the on the, webs, uh, on the show notes on the website of Thoth Hermes. And there you'll find out about the subject of our talk here today, which is the Fellowship of the Hermetic Rose. It's about um, a year ago, a little less than a year ago, that uh, John Michael Greer started writing about this Fellowship of the Hermetic Rose, which exactly, which actually is a fellowship that he creates. It's But it's not a fellowship that's where you pay fees or where you meet up with people or so on. Well, you can meet, of course, if you find like-minded people. But it's free stuff that has been now published um, initiation for seven degrees. It's a kind of golden dawn dirt. Well, he'll tell you all about it because it's, it's of course, it has to do with his personal story and history, John Michael Greer, and his contacts. And he has pulled out of, um, of being that uh, a system that, that could have been forgotten if he hadn't done so. And it's very interesting. It's for people who want to work solitary, people who want to work in small groups if they meet up. And it's all completely free. And by the time this podcast will be released, um, already the full uh, set of of block uh, entries that he made over the last year will be put together in a PDF. He talks about that, which you can download for free and use and create your own fellowship of the Hermetic Rose system at home or wherever you want. So really exciting, especially because it's being done by somebody who has a real great background, big experience, and many influences come together in that fellowship. And we're going to talk about all that in this episode. So I don't think in the case of John Michael Greer, I don't think that it's necessary to read you something from that. He will talk himself about, uh, about that system, about that fellowship, and where it comes from. Listen carefully. It's really interesting. Even if you're not interested in participating in a new system, the background and where it comes from, from the, the, how it came to him, it's really an interesting story, I think. And so I'm sure you're going to enjoy that episode. Be aware that John Michael Greer and I, when we speak, we always do that over the phone. So it sounds a bit different from the usual interviews, but you who are regulars of this show, you might already be used to that when John Michael is on 
we speak on the phone, but it's excellent quality. And uh, it's especially always really, really lovely to speak to him. So let's go. Let's meet John Michael Greer once again on the Thought Hermes podcast and talk about the Fellowship of the Hermetic Rose. Here comes the interview. Well, it is a great, great pleasure to have uh, one of my favorite guests here back on the Thoth Hermes podcast. And that he is one of the favorites is that he's now a common record holder together with Tobias Church. And John Mike Greer is here with us tonight for the fourth time on the Thoth Hermes podcast. Thank you, John Mike Greer, for being with us and for giving us the time and uh, well, talk to us again. Hello. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me back on. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Well, we had you here as an author. We had you here as um, uh, talking as an astrologer, let's put it that way, when we talked about mm -hmm. Pluto and, and those things. We had you here in different capacities. And today, what we're going to talk about is something that you just about were to finish online. You have... I almost would like to create in the game, name it, but you maybe have a better name for it. Uh, online initiation system. Well, the online is meant to that is downloadable, downloadable and free. And um, we want to talk about the fellowship of the hermetic rose. That's the name of that system. Uh, I would like to call it. Um, so um, did I give it the right names? How would you name it? That, what is the fellowship of the hermetic rose? The Fellowship of the Hermetic Rose is a system would be a good term. It is not an organization. I, I've, I've done plenty of occult organizations down the years, and I don't want to add to their number. <laughs> um, it, is, it is a system. It is, it is a renaming and slight re-editing of a system that has had several other names in its, in its wanderings through time. Awesome. And, but this is the one I've given it and, mm -hmm. you know, setting it on its way. And, uh, well, I have followed it over approximately the last year since you have started to post about it. I think it was back in February that I at least saw the first posting mm -hmm. on your blog, Dream, on your Ecosophia Dream Wits blog. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. It was right around then. Yeah, I don't, I'd have to look it up to, to remember the exact timing, but it's been a while. <laughs> There's been a lot of material. Yes, and it is exciting material and of course that we go maybe a bit in depth in that uh, in a minute it mm -hmm. has certain um it has a reconnaissance effect regarding the golden dawn there is something in it that reminds the golden dawn and i think in mm -hmm. your first post about it you also talk a little bit about affiliation through john mm -hmm. gilbert if i remember well and maybe you want to give us a bit that background and what the fellowship okay. is and uh, okay, where yeah. it comes from. The, the, mm -hmm. the, okay, ba basically, um, the starting point from, for this is about a year and a half ago, a little more than that. Um, John Gilbert, who was one of my teachers, passed away after a long illness. Mm. Um, John was, um, he was quite elderly by that time. It was, it was no, it came as no surprise to anyone, but, um, John had been a student of several of several occult teachers back in the day, and he had received from one of them um, this particular offshoot of the Golden Dawn. The, the teacher was Dr. Juliet Ashley. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the the account goes that Ashley was in Europe um, just before the Second World War. She was in Zurich, where she was studying um, with uh, with the unions there. I don't think she actually studied from Carl Jung himself, but she was associating with, she was a psychologist as well as an occultist. She was studying Jungian psychology with some of the, the people running around Zurich at that time. Mm-hmm. And... So um, in 1939, as it became very clear that Europe was about to go up like a crepe suzette, um, she did the smart thing and left for home. And on the way home, she stopped in Britain. She had had a long correspondence with Arthur Edward Waite, who um, we we can get to in a little more. And according to the account, she received from Waite um, a charter and the necessary rituals to start up a branch of one of Waite's um, golden own golden dawn offshoots, the Holy Order of the Golden Dawn. Not his later fellowship of the, of, of the Rosy Cross, but his earlier one, the same one that, um, that, that well that Evelyn Underhill belonged to, and that um, Pamela Colden Smith, the creator yeah, of yeah. Smith Rider Waite Tarot Deck, yeah. that she belonged to, and so. Um, so Juliet Ashley, according to the account, went went home, got home before the before the bomb started falling, and in uh, it was in 1942, I think it was in um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, founded her own branch of the Holy Order of the Golden Dawn. Now Juliet Ashley was not the kind of person to just take something that she'd been given and leave it alone. She studied with a lot of occult teachers. She was a student of Manly P. Hall. She was a student of Edgar Cayce, um, as well as, of course, of of Carl Jung and so on. And so she reworked the rituals considerably. And 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 changed you know and of course she was starting with Waite's version which was itself different from the original Golden Dawn, but so this was the system that she taught and that passed on passed from her to various students and among them to John Gilbert, and so John who was um, John John was a was a rather odd esoteric Christian but he didn't like calling it the Holy Order of the Golden Dawn he thought that was a little arrogant. And so he called it the Magical Order, Order of the Golden Dawn, um, which was kind of funny because ceremonial magic was one of the things it didn't teach. So yeah. They inherited from Wade. Yeah. So, so he had this Magical Order of the Golden Dawn, and that, that was the version into which I was initiated back okay. in the day. And that's a Magical and so, with a K, I believe, in that magic case, right? with a, Magic with a K. That always makes me right. think of a Monty Python skit. <laughs> but yes, he he used he used the K. I, 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 it's the only thing he ever borrowed from Alistair Crowley. But um, but he did okay. use the K. So so at any rate, the, the the magical order of the Golden Dawn was the thing that, that came to me, and he had pretty much folded it up. Some rather about a decade before he died, he we, he had kind of withdrawn from teaching and folded up his the organizations. He was a really good teacher. And a really good practitioner, he was not very good at organizational stuff. And so he kept on having organizations blow up around him. And so he apparently he just got tired of that and closed it all down. But so that left me and a very few other people as heirs of the system. And I contacted his widow. We had a series of a series of conversations, mostly by email. And um, I arranged to get permission from her. In fact, she offered me um, just to please make sure this stuff doesn't get lost. And so I've been in the process ever since that that conversation reached that point. I've been in the process of um, unpacking all the material that I received from John and getting it into people's hands in one way or the other. 
And so because I didn't think it was fair to call something the magical order of the Golden Dawn when it wasn't a standard Golden Dawn order and it wasn't a place you would learn ceremonial magic, mm-hmm. I renamed the organization the Fellowship of the, of the Hermetic Rose and um, started started just issuing the knowledge, putting out the knowledge lectures and all of the information, including the self-initiation rituals and so on, um, right. on my Dreamwith journal. And the end result of the whole shebang, um, which will be available for download in a short time, as soon as I finished the thing, which is, um, what, next week, um, four, four volumes, PDF, um, they are published under a Creative Commons license, so they are free to be copied and downloaded and spread around, um, providing the entire system of, man, of, of occultism, of occult study and practice taught by the FHR. That that is quite amazing. Actually, um, we are recording this interview on October nineteenth. So when you say next week, by the time this interview will be released, uh, this it'll, will be already be downloadable there, and that that's oh, great yeah. because I had a question because I followed the way you built it up by those blog postings, and of course, to get an overview was a let's say a bit complicated but now that <laughs> yeah. you say that you say it's going to be in a vol in four volumes i believe downloadable that's great that's great news for everyone who, who wants to follow that would you mind before we delve into into uh, the details of your system and of the fellowship that we talk a little bit more about those golden dawn Original oh, yeah. Golden Dawn offshoots. So you're such a specialist mm-hmm. in that field. It would be a pity not to have you uh, tell <laughs> us about, well, the original mm-hmm. Golden Dawn, what we call the original Golden Dawn, was created in 1883, I believe, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn back in London, right? Mm-hmm. 1887 was the, was the, day, found, was mm-hmm. the day of founding. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. okay, we have the traditional story. And the traditional story is right out of a 19th century. Uh, in fact, I can name the right 19th century occult novel that is borrowed from. Um, but yes, yeah, supposedly um, one of the founders was um, in a bookstall in London. That had, you know, back in the days when bookstalls in London had lots of just random stuff in them. And he found this packet of documents in code in some kind of strange cipher and brought it to his friends. Uh, and so William Wynne Westcott and, um, and Samuel Mathers, all, they're all Mason, and, and uh, William Woodford, all Masons, all up to their eyeballs in the, in the British occult scene of the time. And they were able to identify the, the cipher as one that was in one of the books of Trithemius. They deciphered it and found not only this amazing set of rituals for a, a magical order, but an address in Germany where you could write to contact. Mm-hmm. Now, if you believe this, um, I know a Nigerian prince who, prince who would love to cut you in on, on a lot of money. Um, <laughs> exactly where it came from, nobody knows for sure. Yeah. There has been uh, there have been several suggestions of who might be the what might be the original source. It's very clear that somebody wanted to cover their tracks. Hmm. But um, one thing that is fairly clear to me from having studied the system extensively is that it shows signs of having been around for a good long time. There, it, if if you read a ritual that's brand new. You read a ritual that somebody's just come up with. It doesn't have a lot of layers. It's just, it's fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. The more it gets reworked, the more it's been passed down through generations, the more stuff gets packed into it. 
and you start getting, for example, a current Masonic ritual that obviously it's like, you know, one of these elderly buildings has been rebuilt 15 times and has yes. little architectural details sticking out all over the place. Um, the Golden Dawn rituals, the original Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn rituals had that feeling to them. They very much have stuff sticking out all over the place. So exactly where they came from, we don't know. But there was something running around. And um, Woodford and up, um, up and died shortly thereafter. But Westcott and Mathers, they hit the ground running. They um, organized the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. They brought in um, all their friends who were heavily involved in occultism. And they brought in their friends. It became the most influential, the most important occult order in the English-speaking world in the 19th and 20th centuries. Oh, yeah. So it was a fairly, Irish, a fairly Irish artist's influence, right? At the time, many oh, yeah. actors and Yeats uh, were members. Uh, people yeah, like yeah, lots of lots of artists and painters became members. Lots of actors, um, people in various the, the most astonishing people. Um, Oscar Wilde. Everyone knows about Oscar Wilde. Many people don't know he was married. His wife, Constance Wilde was a member of the Golden Dawn. True, yeah, absolutely. I read that once. Yeah. Oh, huh? yeah, these, these, these amazing connections. Um, yeah, writers and poets and various avant-garde people. And um, yeah, it was a very lively scene. The one great problem was that uh, it was a, had a wonderful magical system, vastly detailed amounts of information. The organizational structure was very fragile. And so... Um, by 1900, it was you know, basically ready to blow at the seams, and it did. There were a series of, of political crises, um, schisms. If you know your way around uh, the history of most occult groups, it was pretty similar. But it blew itself to smithereens mm. and fragments flying in all directions. You know, you know the kind of thing. And Arthur Edward Waite, of course, was the was one of the people who ended up in charge of one of the fragments. Yeah. Um, and of course, Waite was a devout, if eccentric Christian. He did not hold with ceremonial magic. So his version of it had simply the occult material, um, the practice of meditation, the tarot, various things like this, but no ritual magic. Right. I wasn't aware of that. So the Hermetic Order, of course, had a lot of ceremonial magic and the oh, and what then went to Paris with 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 Mathers and so Mathers. on. Mm -hmm. kept, yeah. kept that yeah. tradition, and right? It, mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it ended up flowing into a lot of French and, and other continental yes. um magical systems and you know, this well before Crowley and then Rigardi blew the gap and published everything. Sure. Um yeah, but but Waits Waits particular version. I mean, the thing is, there were there were like three competing Golden Dawn orders in England at the time that um, uh, you know in the immediate aftermath of the blow up, and two of them had the whole magical system. And then there was Wait who was doing his own thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. I wasn't aware of that, really. I, I didn't know that Wade took that part out. And so that's what what uh, then was taken on to America, as you explained earlier. That's was correct. that offshoot without the ceremonial magic part in it? Now I got well, it. What do you mean? America, America actually got several versions of it. Um, there was there were a bunch of actually um, between the two world wars, there were Golden Dawn lodges in half a dozen American cities that were part of Mathers's branch. Right. Um, yeah, there was one in New York, one in one in Boston, and so on. And there was also another Rosicrucian order, the uh, Societas Rosicruciana, Rosicruciana in America, um, mm -hmm. not to be mistaken for several other SRIAs. They're 
Rosicrucians are like that. Um, right. That was also more or less affiliated with Mathers and that got the rituals from them and, and performed them. So there's all this stuff going on. But then there was Juliet Ashley in Philadelphia setting up her Holy Order of the Golden Dawn using weight system and mm-hmm. and setting in motion the you know the process that led to the FHR. Right, right. Okay, got you. And the Stella Matutina was the other system that stayed in Europe first that, and came to America later, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that came that came quite a bit later. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so so ultimately we got all three we got all three of those systems. But it, in some cases it was the long way around. And may I dig one more thing into your into your brain the 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 okay. famous the famous thing that went to new zealand down under the the, mm-hmm. the war raw system where did that originate from oh that's that that's stella Matutina. that started okay. out as stella Matutina and then proceeded mm-hmm. to kind of mutate in its own direction as as magical lodges do one of the things i hope we i hope someday People involved in magical lodges can get rid of this habit of claiming that they have this this unchanged system, gray with yeah. the dust of centuries that's been passed down without yeah. a single bit of original thinking for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Mages are tinkerers. Occultists love to tinker. They get something and they say, hmm, what if I try this? And so that's, in, that's, that's normal, it's natural, it's healthy, and it produces good magic. But Absolutely. you know, yeah. We, we, yeah. but we've got this. We've got this. This sort of no. We have the original version without any improvement at all. <laughs> <laughs> and we find that's the best thing we could have. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's hmm, yeah. Okay. Like we could have a whole episode on just that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, well. Okay. And then so you. Uh, that's John Gilbert we were talking about. I think we just mm-hmm. to point out he's not the R.A. Gilbert, who is that writer no, no. who wrote very important books on the history of the Golden Dawn. Just as to far as I know, John Gilbert and R.A. Gilbert are completely unrelated. Yeah. Um, it was a it's a common English name. That's yeah, I, sure, sure. If there's any connection, it's like you know they're forty third forty third cousins. Cousin, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just want to make uh, that there's no confusion. There's no confusion about the names of people. Mm-hmm, think yeah. he's the same person okay sure. so you were initiated in that system um mm-hmm. now as a personal story if you want to, to, to personal to john michael greer what did this golden dawn system bring into your life how did it how did you work with it and where okay. did it carry you okay um when when i first got involved in this this will be a little roundabout because the whole process was very roundabout Um, because I I ended up studying with John Gilbert because um, he was one of the last the the last surviving members of the ancient order of druids in America and he was the person responsible for bringing me in and uh, ultimately pitchforking me into the into the hot seat as as Grand Arch Druid Um, and so one of the things that was involved in that process is that because all of these various orders had more or less folded into each other in the in the long period of contraction, well, when nobody was interested in this kind of traditional occultism, mm-hmm. um, to be an archdruid of AODA meant you also had to receive initiation in each of these other orders, and so I had a lot of work to do. I had to be, you know, in properly initiated as, 
you know, in the order of spiritual alchemy and the modern order of Essenes and the um, and, and the the magical order of the Golden Dawn, as well as preparing for ordination and consecration as a priest and then a bishop in the Universal Gnostic Church. It sounds like a full-time <laughs> job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and all this while trying to slap shock paddles onto the onto AODA, onto the this Druid order that I'd more or less inherited, and get it going again. So it was it was a hectic time, but. Um, the, the, the thing that's really struck me, of course, my original training in all this was gold, was classic golden dawn. Um, mm-hmm. my, my textbook was Riardi's big brick and, right. and I, I had, that was my understanding of occultism, that it was all about that kind of ceremonial magic stuff and so on. I had very little exposure to other ways of practicing occultism. Mm-hmm. And so to encounter um, a whole series of occult practices that did not focus on ceremonial magic, that focused on meditation, on divination, on the development of, of consciousness in less ornate, less ritualized ways, was really kind of a shock to me. I was going, okay, are these things missing something? Well, no, actually they're not. They work just, just fine on their own. And so that was the, you know, with all three of these, that was, that was the, the kind of revolutionary discovery. Then I proceeded after, you know, after the period of the sort sort of in-depth period of initiation, um, going through everything in a rush, I proceeded to go back through them one at a time and actually put the necessary time into developing them, learning how to how to make use of them. And at that point, I started to realize that the the magical order of the Golden Dawn, as it was then, really had something distinctive to pass on, you know, that. that there are ways to relate to the unseen, ways to relate to the 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 world of magic, the world of of spirituality, mm-hmm. that don't have to do with ritual, that don't have to do with trying to make things happen. Where right. you're doing it in a more contemplative fashion, you are focusing on developing yourself and developing the way that you relate to the world, and weirdly that also works to straighten out your your life to get the things you want out of life and so on it's actually very effective mm-hmm. so it was it was a major the whole process of coming to terms with that was a major step in my own my own occult education and it, it really broadened my sense of of what the possibilities are in occult training and in in occultism generally right can you Maybe expand a little bit on that particular point, because I'm sure many of our listeners here have a certain habitude of using the Golden Dawn ceremonial magic system, because Mm -hmm. that's the one that is very well known and spread Mm -hmm. around. Um, You also wrote the book, The Celtic Golden Dawn, at some point. I I have it, to be honest, I read it once, but I don't remember if that goes also more into the ceremonial magic part or, oh, yeah. or I think it does, but I wasn't sure. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so what is it a concentration on something else? Is it is it more inner work than outward? How would you to somebody okay. who is ex- interested to explain it? Okay. The, I'm going to start by making a little bit of a little bit of critique of the way that the Golden Dawn material has been received, mm-hmm. because the Golden Dawn, as originally practiced, of course, you would spend a couple of years in the outer order. You would do um, very little ritual work. I mean, you'd be practicing the lesser ritual, the pentagram, for for most of that time, and then you'd add in the middle pillar exercise. Yeah. 
but those were your only ritual practices. Meanwhile, you'd be doing a lot of studying, you would be doing a lot of meditation, you'd be learning several systems of divination, you'd be, you might be practicing some alchemy, you'd be doing various other things to get this sort of broad general mastery mm-hmm. of the occult, of, of, of occult traditions. And then after you received your Adeptus Minor degree, then you got handed this massive, this massive stuff having to do with ceremonial magic, which you could then make use of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you chose, you needed to develop a certain amount so that you could function in, in you know, as a temple officer and so on. Mm-hmm. But it was more, you know, an optional advanced course than it was the core of the thing. These days, Everybody treats it as the core of the thing, and this this is in tr- this is as true in most Golden Dawn temples that is, as it is among the thousands of people out there who just have some books and are practicing. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wants to start with the LBRP, add in other st- stuff, build up step by step by step until you know all your time is spent doing these tremendous rituals. It's one way. It certainly works. It's it's very much the way the Israel Regardi seemed to approach the whole thing. Yeah, um, I was going to say because that's what Regardi tells us in his mm-hmm. book, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's and that's the thing. It is a valid approach. It's just not the only game in town. Mm-hmm. And even in the original Golden Dawn, it was much ceremonial magic was much less central than it's become in the Golden Dawn tradition since then. Mm-hmm. And if you approach if you approach the outer order work as a thing in itself. If you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make meditation a daily practice. I'm going to make divination a daily practice. Mm-hmm. I'm going to study occultism. I'm going to learn occult philosophy. I'm going to learn to think like an occultist and a mage. And the, as, as I mentioned earlier, the funny thing is as you do this, a lot of the things you think, oh, I got to do a ritual to do X, Y, and Z, they happen anyway. You practice divination, you develop intuitive skills. That's what divination practice is for, to get to the point that you don't need to shuffle the cards. And all of a sudden, problems start clearing up because you get this intuitive prompt saying, do this or don't do that, and your life straightens out, and your problems go away. Or you practice meditation daily, and gradually you clear away blockages to clear perception, and then you suddenly slap your forehead saying, why have I been such a moron for the last 20 years? I've done all these things that are, do, that are self-defeating. I'm going to stop, and then all of a sudden your life works. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways to fix your life that do not involve tracing a circle and burning a lot of incense and chanting bizarre, you know, um, mighty barbarous names of power and all the other fun stuff that, that we're all used to doing as, as ceremonial magicians. And that was this—that was really the specialty of a, of a very broad tradition in the older occult literature and older occult groups. That kind of more reflective, more contemplative, more let's just work with the powers that are hardwired into our own bodies and minds rather than you know conjuring spirits from the vasty deep. Mm-hmm. Um, and it works. It works extremely well. Now. Does that mean there's anything wrong with ceremonial magic? Of course not. I do think that it's a good idea to know both and to have some background in the in the simpler, the contemplative and reflective means before you start to, you know, um, summoning mighty powers from the vasty deeps. Get that background in place first. Mm-hmm. But there is this other way that's been largely neglected, and so it's been. It's been one of one of my one of my um, sort of projects to get it back into circulation for people who might want to work with it. 
That's very interesting. It, it sounds almost a bit like um, uh, Reformation in Christian church. We know like Calvinism bro- mm-hmm. suddenly breaks in, which <laughs> puts all the way the, 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 the incense and, and, and the formalities around just to concentrate mm-hmm. on scripture in the case of, of Christian church. And so, it, yeah. It, 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 yeah, at well, first sight, it, it looks like that. Mm-hmm. It, you know that's that's not that's I don't think that's that's a mistake because the the heart of this of this kind of magic the homeland of it in in large part was a, was the United States yeah and the United States is very powerfully shaped by Protestant um, sure Protestant yeah. spiritual beliefs I've I have had Catholics you know put their hand, you know devout Catholics put their hands in their heads and dis- their heads in their hands in despair and go in America even the Catholics are Protestant. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's like in England, all, also the Anglicans are Catholics, you know, <laughs> they think oh, yeah. Yeah. they're Catholic. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, no, um, I, I see what you mean. In a way, it feels like we have three parts to, to the ceremonial part, the meditation divination part, and then the the third being the, the reading and the studying, which, as you mm-hmm. say, often in, with many cases, I personally know takes over too much often that at least mm-hmm. that's how I see it. Maybe that's some particular approach I take, but um, it, it gets into the way of practice practitioners mm-hmm. because they read so much. They just get lost in reading. <laughs> well, yeah, I, the, I, you know, as, as a longtime voracious reader, I can understand that. And yes, you can, you can do too much reading. You can, especially if, if if you use that as an excuse to not actually um, do anything else. But yeah, I think exactly, there's also, exactly, I think, yeah, yeah. I think you can do too much of any of these things, and I think you can also mm-hmm. do too little of any of these things. I have met a fair number of really capable magicians, people who were good at ceremonial magic, who could make things happen, who had the most limited and limiting understanding of what they were doing because they simply hadn't read enough. They hadn't yeah, studied sure. enough, um, enough, enough occult philosophy. They didn't have a clear framework in their minds for what they were doing and it limited what they could accomplish. And yeah. so, you know, it's, yeah. it's very much a matter of finding the balance. Uh, yeah. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Let's take out those three um, points in your very first post. I believe it was the first back in February uh, 22 um, about the fellowship. You say there are Uh three daily practices. There's this Uh discursive meditation that you just mentioned, Uh daily divination that you just mentioned, Uh and protective ritual, um, sphere Uh of protection. Can we maybe, um, especially the, well, let's go into the three a little bit because um, Uh meditation, well, Everybody more or less knows what that means. That means two hundred different things. So, what is <laughs> what yeah. is discursive meditation? What? How would you okay. explain that? This was my this all way back, you know, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, um, when I was first <laughs> getting started studying magic. My first great discovery um, was that there is a kind of meditation that doesn't involve emptying your mind. Mm-hmm. And basically, I looked at the there, there are there are meditations for each of the outer order grades in the in you know Regardi's big book, mm-hmm. and I was looking at these going, this is not like any kind of meditation I've ever heard I've ever heard of. You know, you um, consider a point, think about its various functions and 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 yeah. at, aspects and attributions, and I'm going what? 
So I, it, you know, being the kind of the kind of book crazed geek that I am, I proceeded to do some reading and find out there was an, this entire Western tradition of meditation that has mostly been forgotten. That a hundred years ago was all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and discursive meditation, the, the basic. The basic thing with discursive meditation is that instead of silencing your mind, you're using your thinking as the focus of concentration. So you choose a theme like, you know, as in the first knowledge or the first meditation of the first knowledge lecture, the Mm -hmm. point, you imagine a point, you think about the point, you keep your mind focused on that thinking. So you don't go from thinking about the point to thinking about, um, you know, next Tuesday's conference at work and, Mm -hmm. um, how, you know, what you, how how you'd rather beat up your, your boss with a, you know, (laughs) with a stick or something or whatever else you might be thinking. You just, you're learning that focus of mind, but you're also thinking about the point you are understanding some things that are that are concealed in these simple geometrical patterns or in certain texts or in certain diagrams i I came to realize that for example alchemical diagrams or the cards of the tarot or many occult texts uh, the unfortunates of the cosmic doctrine is a great example they're meant to be meditated on this way they were designed for that purpose yeah, or the four, tatwa, the four tatwa shapes, for example. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, you meditate on them, unpack them, and all of a sudden you're you're looking at the you're looking at the image of the fool as as you know whether it's the Golden Dawn version or the Rider Waite version or the mm-hmm. Crowley's Thoth deck or what have you, and. Good heavens, there's all this stuff that's been packed in here. There's a lot of teaching in this. Here's an alchemical diagram. It's from the Splendor Solis. If you can't spend a week unpacking things from one of those pictures, you are not doing a yeah, job. Yeah, if you, if yeah, you spend yeah, less than a month, sure. you probably are, are, are shorting <laughs> yourself. And so discursive meditation is really a key to one of the lost keys of, of Western occultism. And Would it so be the same that some call, sorry, that, that some call active meditation because you also have a distinction passive and active where passive is, is emptying your mind, as you just said, mm-hmm. is, is there a difference between active meditation and discursive meditation? Well, I've heard the term active meditation used for three or four different things. Okay. Um, I've seen active meditation used as a term for movement meditation where you're moving your physical body and concentrating. Ah, okay, no, I didn't mean that. Uh, yeah, yeah that's a right, good practice, yes. but it's not the same thing. Yeah. But yeah, as long as you're basically, if you are thinking and following out your thoughts and keeping your mind focused and keeping your thoughts focused on the theme, that's discursive meditation, whatever other names it may have. Mm-hmm. So we've got that. That's one of the three, um, the three pillars, the three, whatever, you know, the the three basic building blocks of daily practice. Yes. Before we move on to the second item in that little list, let's take a musical break and uh, let's listen again. Yes, I am sure you will already have realized it is going to be some more classical music, but At the end of the interview, there is always the third piece of music that's not going to be classical musical. That's going to be something completely different. So what are we going to hear now? Um, Austrian composer Franz Schmidt, um, not very well known, to be honest, but uh, I really love and adore his music. And especially I love his opera Notre Dame, which is the story of, well, Notre Dame, which some of you might know from that musical that has been created much later, of course, and this is music from the early 20th century we're going to hear. Uh, it's an intermezzo. It's again without singing. No worries. It's a 
five-minute intermezzo from the opera, the most lovely orchestral classical music, really. It's very emotional, very... And so well interpreted and played here by one of my favorite conductors, Pablo Yervi, who is Estonian and who was principal conductor of the orchestra. We hear the Frankfurt Radio Symphony Orchestra, but at the time they recorded that he was already had already moved on, but he came back to conduct him to do this Franz Schmidt intimate. So actually it was an encore during a concert. Uh, maybe you hear some people coughing in the background, I don't know. But that's the reason it's a live recording. And uh, well, after that, after Franz Schmidt's Notre Dame, we, of course, return to meet John Michael Greer and continue to talk about the fellowship uh, of the Hermetic Rose. I believe it's a really interesting topic and interesting system that he has developed here. Don't miss it out and go on the show notes. You'll find you'll find all the links that you need to find the product itself uh, that you can download for free. Okay, so after the interview, as I said, the third piece will not be classical music. It will be completely different. It will be, well, it is, I think, rather rather well known, especially in North America, the Lakota lullaby. And from time to time, I've done that before, and I will do it again. Um, I find on YouTube some nice young singers who have great voices and to interpret songs there and to one who want to become a bit more, a bit better known. And I think why not help them? Because I think what also this young lady we hear here does is great. She is from Brazil. It's called Alexia Evelyn. And uh, her interpretation of the Lakota lullaby, also a live recording, by the way, together with a friend or colleague, I don't know the second lady's name, I'm afraid, but it's about Alexia Evelyn, that recording, and it's the Lakota lullaby. That will be the third musical piece here today. And so once again, Franz Schmidt and the intermezzo from his opera Notre Dame. After that, we return to meet John Michael Greer. And after that, it's the Lakota lullaby. And then, of course, I'll return to tell you all about episode number nine. Enjoy.
let's move on to the second. Uh, the second being you already mentioned it's daily divination, and I was quite mm -hmm. curious why and how because I've actually never seen that in any other practice to see as a daily yeah. requirement. Yeah, um, I and I have no idea why because um, <laughs> in my experience and the experience of other people that I've worked with, there is no better way to develop that intuitive sense that you can use to guide yourself in action than doing a meditation every day. And crucially, you cast the, you cast the reading, any kind of reading, whatever you like, whatever you want to use. Use a magic eight ball. Um, but you do the reading, you write down the results, and you come back afterwards and see how well you did. Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. do this day after day, and you mm -hmm. gradually refine your ability to interpret the thing. And in the process, again, you develop that intuitive awareness, which is so valuable in, in all of life. And so, you know, I don't, I, I, I mean, the golden dawn put a lot of emphasis into, into people learning divination, the, the, the classic golden dawn. You suppose yeah. you could not get past portal unless you could, unless you were a cap competent geomancer, unless you knew the way, your way around the tarot, could do tarot divination, and could cast and interpret a horoscope. <laughs> so, you know, obviously they realize that divination matters, but I don't know why they didn't make it a daily thing. Um, partly that's because yeah, the Golden Dawn, the Golden Dawn versions of divination tended to be very cumbersome. I, I've studied a lot of different kinds of tarot readings. I have never encountered anything as awkward as the Golden Dawn, the full Golden Dawn opening of the key routine where you're literally laying out the entire deck five times. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, over the top a little? Yeah, I think so. And, and the problem is they were doing all the, all of their stuff this way. And... It's not really, you know, I don't know that I would advise anyone to cast a, especially if they don't have a computer, to cast a horoscope by hand every single day. It's yeah. a little awkward. Yeah. You can check it, your daily transit. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in Victorian times, they had lots of time at their hands when they were nobles, uh, people and, and, and had a lot of money. Um, but um, yeah, I see. I see what you mean. And you say uh, somewhere in the material that one should maybe not for divination, but for the ritual part, we should always use the Rider Tarot deck. Yeah, um, purely for the ritual. Yeah. Why? You why? Can, why can, is that? Okay, that was the one that that was the one that John Gilbert always used. It's the one that okay. uh, Juliet Ashley used. It was part of the tradition and mm. part of the process of keying into the original egregore is using these specific okay. images. Yeah. So it's not that you know you can divine with anything. Okay. <laughs> you can yeah. divine with any deck your your yeah. your heart desires. But for the ritual work, these are the these are the altar pictures. These are the altar images. The yeah. the, the tracing boards. The, they are charged to, with, with the egregore, mm -hmm. so to speak. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Now let's go to the, the third part, which is the protective ritual that you mentioned, mm -hmm. and you particularly mentioned in that posting that I I mean the first posting the sphere of protection, and I mm -hmm. I. Found Found that very interesting. You also mentioned that it could also be the lesser banishing ritual. That could be the middle pillar exercise. But um, that John Gilbert recommended the sphere of protection. Can you maybe give a short description of that and what its its okay. particularity? The, the, the sphere of protection is is an odd little ritual, and it was in its in its current form. It was actually created by John Gilbert. He was building off some material that he learned from Juliet Ashley. 
but basically it's 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 pretty clearly partly derived from the lesser ritual of pentagram but the symbols are different and so on so what you're doing you start with a little opening thing where you where you invoke whatever deities you work with um one of the things about the sphere of protection is that it is almost infinitely adaptable to whatever set of deities or 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 impersonal divine powers you you like to work with so you invoke those you then go to um the east the south the west the north you trace a certain symbol in the in the um the invoking way and you invoke the the energy the positive energies of each element and then you trace the same symbol in a banishing mode and banish with the help of the element anything corresponding to that element you want to get rid of so you do that um, around the thing. Then, then it's spirit below you, and you only you do not you never banish spirit. That's one of the basic rules of the ritual. But you do an invoking uh, symbol down for spirit below and up for spirit above, and then you invoke it all into yourself and get yourself in balance with spirit within. Okay. Then okay. you project. For having done that, you project a sphere outwards from yourself, which which defines the sort of protected space, and it's out beyond the limits of your aura, and it, and you establish that. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very straightforward ritual. It is best learned a sort of one step at a time, but that's all included in both in in the book and in a series of posts to which I linked. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, but the the. Go ahead. Uh, I have a question here because because um, banishing and 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 I'm not talking about the pentagram ritual, but what you just said about the sphere of protection um, makes me think of that because if I got you well, you say it does not banish. When I well, I have, I have many years of practice, but when I do banishing too often, I get mm-hmm. the impression to close myself off visualization mm-hmm. and divination and other mm-hmm. stuff. I I need to do regularly the evoking part of the particular mm-hmm. ritual and mm-hmm. not the vanishing. Uh, otherwise I feel to get, yeah, I feel to get locked off. So to speak. Oh, yeah. um, uh, what do you say to that is, uh, okay. why is the vanishing so important? So well, some, some people, some people report that problem. Um, mm. I think you would also find if you only did invokings, you'd also have difficulties. One of the reasons yeah, that the sphere of protection is rigged the way it is, is that you are invoking and banishing. You're invoking positive things from the elements. You're banishing things you want to get rid of. So you're yeah. including a balance between that. It's also a little more invoking than banishing. You're mm-hmm. you're banishing four directions and invoking in six. So, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is interesting because this that actually fits the classic sort of the classic feng shui rule that you should have three three parts yang, three parts positive for every two parts yin. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then the fifth and the sixth is is is, is, is Nadir and Zenit. It is up and down, right? In in the it's up and down, exactly. Yeah, right. it's spirit Which below and spirit above. I always, especially the below, um, find really a missing part in the pentagram ritual to me, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we have mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. the end of the pentagram ritual, we have the we have above, we have the six star, the star, the six, uh, the David star, right on on top. But mm-hmm. we have nothing for the spirits below. Nothing below. Which, which always makes me think, hmm, I feel like something's missing there. But who am I to criticize the pentagram ritual? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's one of the things that, one of the ways I set up, and this is actually John's, John Gilbert's rule was that you could do either the sphere of protection or the lesser ritual, the pentagram, and the middle pillar exercise. Yes. He insisted that if you're going to do the LBRP, you've got to do the middle pillar because the pentagram ritual, 
banishes, but the metal pillar invokes. So you have that invoking okay. going on. Okay. 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 So, so he's with me there. But, <laughs> yeah, very much yeah. so. So yeah. what, and then, so there's this, the, the pentagram ritual, there is the sphere of protection. And then I also added in a third option, um, long complex story, hunting for various things, found this weird old publication from a small American press in, I think it was 1883 or something like that, okay. where a spiritualist had um, passed on this, this curious exercise that um, banished and then invoked um, mm-hmm. Mostly on the etheric plane, mostly on the plane of life energy, but it was the foundation of her, uh, what she taught to students of hers. And I was going, well, this is cool. Um, And so I posted a link to it on on my Dreamwith journal and various people piled into it and said, wow, this this actually, this this is like a pentagram ritual or a sphere of protection, except it mostly makes use of movement and it's very different structure. But so the the Judson exercise, Abby Judson was the was the author of the book. It doesn't have a good name yet, but so we call it the Judson exercise, and that's the third option. And so as long as you're doing one of these each day, you're having that invoking and banishing. You're getting a little bit of facility with ritual in that, and that's the third part of the practice. Right, and uh, Judson is a is a kind of etheric exercise, right? If I if, mm-hmm. if yeah, I yeah, it's much yeah. closer. Mm-hmm. It works. It does work on the astral plane, but it's especially good on the etheric plane. One interesting thing is that I've had a couple of people teach it to children, and you know, a lot of magical stuff you really don't want to teach to to young children, especially ceremonial yeah, magic. Sure, sure. This is apparently fine. I mean, okay. it involves spinning around in circles, which most kids do anyway. Yeah, true. <laughs> and, yes, yes. Must be some so, reason to yeah, apparent, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparent, apparently, the, the kids are sort of instinctively trying to banish and invoke. So you teach them this, and it, it has some movements, and it has a it has a prayer, and you know, which can be any prayer you like. Yeah. And it apparently works very well. So I was very glad to find that, and I've included it in the in the book and in the lessons. So anyone who wants to work with it can add that to the possible, add that to the pot, so to speak. Well, I may add to that, that my cat, when I did an invoking uh, um, um, pentagram ritual, after that, she often goes in circle and sits in the four corners for a while and then goes <laughs> into the next. It's, no, really, it's very, very funny. I always oh, yeah. observe oh, that. Cats, cats, yeah. cats do that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, when yeah. I was doing classic Golden Dawn stuff, we had a cat. And the moment I would set up the altar, I had a, I had a folding table with a piece mm-hmm. of wood on top of it with the altar cloth draped over it. That was my portable altar. I'd set the altar up and the cat would come patting in in a hurry and curl up underneath the center of the altar yeah. and go to sleep. Yeah, like, yeah I'm sure. Like clockwork. I'm sure. The yeah. cat was always there. Yeah, um, yeah. Several other people I know of have had um, cats who are very, very interested in magical practice. Yeah, yeah. So mine certainly is absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, back to the Fellowship of the Hermetic Rose. What gave mm-hmm. it the name? What, what, uh, what made you choose that very name? Um, well, fellowship. I'll, I'll break it. I'll break it apart. Um, fellowship, because that was what John was calling the organizations that he that he had. Okay, if you reached a certain level of initiation and you were brought into the um, Universal Gnostic Church as a priest or a bishop, one of the things you could do is found some kind of special working, um, which could which should be taught to other people. And it was the fellowship of this. It was the fellowship of that. Various people had various fellowships. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a neat idea. 
And so since this was kind of my reworking of the Holy Order of the Golden Dawn, Magical Order of the Golden Dawn, I was to decide, okay, in keeping with that tradition, we're going to call it a fellowship. Right. And hermetic because it is, you know. It is, it, yeah. yeah. Odd mm-hmm. though it is, it draws from from the hermetic tradition, the same tradition that gave rise to the Golden Dawn and so many other things. Um, Rose is a little more complex, but on the one hand, how does one say this? There's a lot of a lot of material out there in the Rosicrucian tradition, mm. and the, but the Rosicrucian tradition is rose and cross. There's always that Christian dimension. Yeah, and so what I was what I was trying to communicate partly was that this is not Christian. It's not anti-Christian. I have there are, there are Christians who practice it and who invoke Jesus when they're you know invoking the divine. That's how they do it, and they get good results. Mm. But it's not explicitly Christian. You don't have to be affiliated with the Christian faith. So it's the rose. And the symbol is a rose in an equilateral triangle. So I figure that's that's kind of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's not the five, the five, uh, not, not a Tudor rose, not with the five no, leaves, no. but it's a, it's it's a, a real, perfectly... A perfectly yeah. ordinary real rose, yeah, a exactly. white rose, a white rose in a golden triangle. Which, um, by the way, has also five five root uh, leaves, but that's another matter. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 also a very good point. Now, yeah. one of the other tricks is that I, one of the things that I received, uh, that I was taught by John, was a particular form of numerology, working with the English language and the English alphabet. And so what I also did was I selected the, um, the name Fellowship or the Hermetic Rose so that it added to an appropriate number numerologically. Now, the hilarious thing is um, in the comments to that very first post, a couple of people popped up saying, wow, you did the numerology on this, didn't you? Oh, really? Wow. Well, good <laughs> oh, for yeah. them. No, I have, I have the best commentariat on the internet, I swear. I have, yeah. I have yeah. great, yeah. I have great yeah. You have, you do, um, actually. <clears throat> I, I, I have one that I need to read, but a little later when we now speak a bit more about it, because I found that one very funny, and you have, it gives a question to you that you're, I'm sure you're happy to answer. But before mm-hmm. that... Um, Give us an overview of, of, of the degrees of the, of the, okay. how does it work that, that, that fellowship? Uh, okay. Um, the, the, the fellowship of the Hermetic Rose ha- notionally speaking, it has seven degrees. Yeah. Effectively it has six. There is, there's also a zero degree of candidate, which is okay. You're interested in, you're doing some basic reading. You're a candidate until you do the first self-initiation ritual. And then you have a series of rituals which more or less correspond to the Golden Dawn Outer Order and Portal. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the seeker, sojourner, server, student, teacher, initiate. Right. And initiate corresponding to Portal. Mm -hmm. Now, each of these has um, a bunch of practices that you do. And which the basic practice, the daily practices are part of that. But each one has an initiation ritual. The initiation ritual set up to function as a self-initiation ritual. This is something that John did. He actually worked it out and he would send, you know, they would send you this ritual. He would, he would email you um, the necessary information. You get access to the ritual, you download it, you perform this ritual. And I was a little skeptical, frankly, when I, but it had the same effect of Google going through a lodge ritual and it works very nicely. Because, you know, the effect of an initiation ritual is it's partly the candidate's preparation. It's partly going through a sequence of specific images and experiences. You can do that as a self-initiatory system. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, so, so, you know, you're a candidate, you learn the basics, 
you you perform you, you know you get to the point where you can do the kind of ritual that the FHR uses. So you open a temple and you perform the self-initiation ritual. You are now a member of the seeker grade, and here's a bunch of other stuff for you to do. <laughs> um, you are expected to learn um, three methods of divination, only only two of which can be card based. Right. And you know, so you so you have to learn and learn them well. Um, you have there are things to meditate on. You're also expected to read a certain number of books on occultism. Um, there are various other practices and exercises and so on. There's material from the Kabbalion and other sources of, of classic occult instruction. And so you work your way through this step by step until finally you reach the, you know, you reach the grade of initiate. In the process, you're actually also being introduced to some of the basic methods of several of the other organizations that, that I mentioned that John also um, okay. was initiated into and taught and that he initiated me into. There's some healing material from the modern work of Essenes. There's some um, working through, digging through your own psyche stuff from the Order of Spiritual Alchemy. There are the, the course of the minor orders in the Universal Gnostic Church. So you learn to to confer blessings and do things like that. And so you go through this extensive training program. Then you become an initiate. Uh, you reach the sixth degree. The seventh degree of adept is not conferred by the FHR. If you want that, you achieve it yourself by your own work in your own way. And it is absolutely traditional. You may not proclaim yourself an adept. If you do, Everyone knows that you don't get, you, you don't know, have a clue. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that, that is an old tradition. You're absolutely right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which yeah, is not exactly. always observed, but it's 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 not it's not observed anything like often enough. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> exactly. But so so it's it. But it's a fairly straightforward, um, classic system of old-fashioned occult training, right. and you know, and but it what is, what gives the practitioner. Maybe that's a strange question, but I'm sure you have a good answer for it. Uh, what gives it the, gives him or her the control of achieving what what he's supposed to achieve to be, for example, a student fourth fourth grade, right? Okay. What, if, there is yeah, no there is well, no there's no the, no control. No, so there's, to, there's, right? Well, the thing is that's that's true of the Golden Dawn these days. I Absolutely. mean, anyone can pick up Regardi's book. Yeah. So this gives. You know, detailed instructions of what you need to do before you do the, the um, mm -hmm. before you do the next initiation ritual. Mm -hmm. You need to spend this much time, accomplish this many things, read this many books, perform this many practices, scry this element, and so on. And if you're actually serious about the work, you're going to want to do it anyway. Yeah. And if you're just looking for a funky title, you know, I, I don't know, one of these days I'll, I'll create an order called the, you know, the, the Grand Assembly of Pompous <laughs> Panjandrums or something like that, which will consist of nothing more than titles. Well, the buff and, on the heads of, of, of the Flintstones. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, about, yeah. You know funny, hat, funny hats and, and ornate titles. And, you know, you join and you get, you get you know, proclaimed as the purple druid of the yeah. glibbering horde of the, of the slime pits of Nuggyobgla. <laughs> and, um, and so for the people who just want titles, that would be the place to send them. Mm -hmm. But, no, but I, 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 I'm insisting because that's, that's uh, and that maybe you could repeat that also again, because that's, an essential part, I believe you can only, you can only achieve what you are and what you want to be and what yeah. you work for. Yeah. And if, no matter if, what the title or whatever is, right? Yeah. 
it it doesn't matter if I mean if you just rush through the initiation rituals more or less without doing any of the work, you're not going to gain the benefits. You're not going to gain the abilities and the 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 expansion of consciousness. You you know you just have some funny titles. Exactly. If you actually want to do the work, and, and this is something that I've seen over and over again, people who are serious about it, you hand them the stuff, they're going, oh, cool, this work. <laughs> and they pile into it. And it, there have been, it is actually, in my experience, more common that I have to say, you've done this, go on to that's great. Because they're saying, well, I haven't done it perfectly. And I, there are like 15 other things that I could... <laughs> yeah, yeah, people, yeah. People get very enthusiastic and very obsessive. And I, I think it's great. Absolutely. I think it's wonderful because and, it, sh- it shows that, that people uh, are really getting caught up in this. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, I don't know if you have made the same experience, but the impression I get is that the Corona periods that we were going through with people mm-hmm. being locked in and not going out and not being able to meet at least over here in Europe. But I think it was part of the same mm-hmm. also oh, in yeah, America. We had a lot of that here too. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And that opened systems like the golden dawn who are open to self-initiation who are open to Uh your own work and helped those systems helped to overcome that Uh and also on the other side this the situation helped those magical systems because Uh they were open to that did you make that same experience Uh i know i know a lot of people who put the lockdown period to very good use who on the one, whether whether they're practicing magic or not, whether whether they're occultists or not, um, yeah. I, just a lot of people took that enforced period of of um, sitting at home and not not being busy in a social thing to really think over their lives and say, mm. um, okay, some things need to change. And those people who were practicing a spiritual tradition or an occult tradition, yeah, many of them got much more serious about it, and so that yeah. there it all turned out to be a good thing. It's being rather awkward over here because one of the things here in the United States where we don't have a lot of protections for workers. And so a lot of people were being expected to work long hours at very low pay with in miserable working conditions. Mm. And now, now the business owners are freaking out because they can't find anyone to work for them because a lot of people were looking back and saying, you know, I'm not going to waste my life doing that. I'm going to do something that me, that, that mm. works for me. And so like, there's a lot of fast food joints out there that yeah. um, can't get adequate staff because they're not willing to pay enough and they want, yeah. you know, these abusive conditions and so on. But mm. I, I think it's all for the battle. Sooner or later, you know, businesses that aren't willing to treat their employees as human beings will go under. Those that are will thrive. And I think that's part of the same process as the as the process that that has encouraged a lot of other, a lot of people to pick up to get serious about their spirituality to really pick up the pace in their magical mm-hmm. practices mm-hmm. Uh, i agree uh, even here in europe we have a bit of the same situation with working mm-hmm. with the working people as you as you just mentioned it's interesting uh, on another level maybe but it, it happens also here mm-hmm. people those okay. those firms have trouble finding people Good thing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, the Golden Dawn and its offshoots, to be disrespectful, <laughs> and have, <laughs> and have to, uh, well, the, one says they are very heavy on tools and, and props and a little of the columns are always, you know, they have to build mm-hmm. those huge columns and stuff and lighting and everything. And uh, is that also... Well, how does it work in the fellowship? Is that also something that you should consider or? Juliet Ashley simplified things considerably. Mm -hmm. And I think she was very wise to do so. 
I mean, the gold, if, if you're into Victorian clutter and bric-a-brac, the golden dawn, the classic golden dawn is for you. Yes. Um, I, I mean, I've studied and, and practiced quite a number of magical teachings at this point, but I don't know anybody who pound for pound uses as much hardware yeah. in, yeah. in, in the, one of the things that Juliet Ashley did, instead of having the big, huge pillars standing in the hall, you have a pair of small pillars which are sitting on the altar, mm-hmm. on the back, on the or the east, the two eastern corners on the altar, the black pillar on the northeast and a white pillar on the southeast. Right. And putting those up on the altar is part of the opening ritual. Taking them down is part of the closing ritual. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, you can, you can actually get by with a lot less hardware. In the mm-hmm. FHR, the basics you need, you need your pillars, you need um, emblems of the four elements. You're going to start with just some very simple ones, and then you're going to add, the, you're going to replace those with the four elemental working tools, um, which are also a little bit of a difference. There's the wand, there's the cup, there's the pentacle, and then there's the book. Not a, book. not a dagger or a knife or anything, okay. the book. Okay. And that's, that was, that was another of Juliet Ashley's things. And she, there's, you know, there are reasons for it, but that's what, that's what we use. Mm-hmm. And so you have those four items and then you have, you have the two pillars, you have your four elemental symbols, you have, um, you have some candles. Right. Um, and that four varies. Colors, right? mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And which candles are burning varies from degree to degree. And then you have a right away tarot deck. And that's right. basically what you need. That's okay. your hardware. So it okay. can be done very easily, very inexpensively, and um, in a relatively confined space. You do not have to have, um, you know, a lodge room, um, pillars, posts, banners, all, you know, all, this kind of, all this kind of stuff. It is helpful to have an image of the tree of life you can stick up on the wall, but an 8.5 by 11 uh, sheet of paper with a, that's color printed out a, a tree of life diagram is quite adequate. Yeah, right, um, right. Yeah. And no banners, of course, because you have no, you have no authority above you who issues the banners, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, so, yeah. And the, she just, she didn't, she, she chose the weight, had, weight reworked the manner somewhat, of course, to fit his own Christian take. And mm-hmm. I don't think Juliet Ashley liked those manners, so she just dropped them. Okay. 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 You see, uh, the banners. Yes, you can see them, of course, as a, as a Christian take. Of course, I never saw it like that, but you're absolutely right. And what, apart from the tools, which are visibly lighter than than the Golden Dawn Temple, uh, what does it need from the practitioner who is seriously involved into that? Uh, what does the fellowship require from them? Um, Time-wise, other kind of investment wise. Uh, no other, no other invest. Well, you are going to have to read a total of fifteen books on occultism. You can get them from the public library if you want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. you don't have to. You, or you could. Uh, you can go and download them from one of the one of the free ebook places that has out of copyright books. There's a lot of good occult literature out there. Right. Um, I linked to one of them in one of my posts and said, you know, if you cannot find something worth reading in here, check to make sure you still have a pulse. Because <laughs> there's a lot of really good occult literature um, that's free. That's free for the reading. So you're going to need to get 15 books and, and read them. You're going to need to you're, the hardware we've discussed. You're going to need to put in probably for most people it's like 20 to 30 minutes a day for your daily practices. Okay. And then you're going to have to put in a little extra time, like once a week, um, maybe another hour, and then some time for reading. 
So mm-hmm. it's not it's not unduly demanding, but it does take daily work. You're going to have to you know skip um, you get up half an hour earlier or skip one one TV show every mm-hmm. day or mm-hmm. what have you to make room for those basic practices. And now you know this this all sounds very simple and undemanding. It's been my experience that maybe one person out of ten who loves to talk about magic will actually do these things. Absolutely, will actually do. The one work. out of 10, so many. One out, yeah, no, no, <laughs> the, the, yeah. I, hey, the thing is, maybe it's just that everyone, people who approach me know that, that, that the daily practice is one of my things. I mean, yes, I remember right. back in the day it was one in 20 or maybe one in 50. Mm. But, you know, I mean, things, things seem to have improved. But yeah, that's, but that's, that's the putting in the time. And doing the work is the non-negotiable requirement. If you right. don't do that, you're wasting your time. Um, go do something else. Go join the, the Order of Pompous Poobahs and yeah. get lots of titles. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and uh, what about the the space requirement? Because uh, so many of those also older systems, well, oh, again, I, I, I'm of course, I'm making a joke, but it's they, they are not adapted to 21st century housing <laughs> when you have... Uh, when you live in a big city yeah. with with a two room with two children in the next room, you know. So what what mm-hmm. do you do? What do you do with okay. space wise? The, the space space wise, you you need to be able to for, for mo- your daily practices. You need some place where you can set up a chair for meditation, and some place where you can like turn around in a circle with your arms out. So, you know, so you can do one of the protective workings, um, for the ritual workings, like the initiations and so on, you need, you need to borrow a room, you know, you can do it when the kids are at school or something like that. You need a room where you can set up an altar and that can be a folding table or something. It doesn't have to be big. You can set up an altar in the center and you can walk in a circle around it. Right. And you can no, then take it off again, and you don't. You can then take it, it all down, and take it all down, put it away before they get home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. not completely dedicated room to to your work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, yeah, it yeah, it yeah, would yeah. be lovely if we all had that freedom. Course, I have yeah. I have never yet I have never yet had a room that I could dedicate completely. Really? To well, I, I'm lucky now. I have since a year and a half since I've moved, I have a basement space really big enough to. Ooh. To, to really consecrate it just for that. I'm very happy about it. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, ha- I have hopes. I have hopes. We're, yeah. we're facing, a, we're probably facing another housing crash here in the United States. <laughs> if I can, if I can get a place with a decent basement, I have some plans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I even built my altar cube myself, so I'm very proud Ooh, of that. nice. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, um, Actually, one of the one of the things I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna put in a a brief plug for one of my other systems here, which is actually very closely related to this. Sure. Um, the 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 book, The Way of the Golden Section, and its connection, and it's yes. the Sacred Geometry Oracle, and now the Occult Philosophy Workbook. There will be more. It's a system. It's another fellowship, the Golden Section Fellowship. It also mm-hmm. derives from John Gilbert's work, but by way, it includes much more of my own stuff. But it's set up to be compatible with the FHR, and it's okay. also set up so that the altar is on one side of the room. <laughs> so you right. don't even have to be right. able to walk around it in a circle. Right. It is right. very right. much yeah. designed yeah. for, yeah. for yeah. the apartment yeah. dwelling 
you know, the apartment dwelling mage, the person who has like the top of a waist high bookshelf and that's how much space Well, exactly, they have. exactly because that does exist and very often it does exist. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, in fact, I, w- I was inspired to do that precisely from with some conversations with people who were saying, you know, is there any way I can do this because I can't really, you know, my, I, I have this very tiny little room, dot, dot, mm-hmm. dot. And so I said, hey, let's, I, I experimented, found that I could make it work and went from there. So that is an option. And I hope to see more people, more people thinking along those lines, because yeah, a lot of us live in very cramped spaces. Absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm happy you mentioned that other order, the, the other fellowship, because I was going mm-hmm. to ask you about it, because we mentioned it briefly last time we spoke here on mm-hmm. the Salt Hermes podcast. And I know that I think the second book has now come out or is about to come out those days. Yeah. And, well, and um, it, well, other, there's the third one, I believe, I think it's three volumes yeah. altogether is about to follow in so the Mm, yeah, so far. Exactly. Oh, there, oh, there, no, there, there's um, the, the fourth volume is, is at the publisher and the fifth one's under is, is being written right now. Oh, there we are. So okay. The, okay. Yeah. So there we go. The, yeah. The, the Golden Section Fellowship, it is um, it, it is a system of occult um, teaching and practice. It's fairly similar in some ways to the, the, the Fellowship of the Hermetic Rose. It has, you know, the same material largely based on what I learned from John Gilbert, but it's more focused on sacred geometry. It's more focused yes. on um, earth energies and earth mysteries. It has a, it draws from my Druid training. And, and, it, and so it has those great the, sacred geometry oracle cards in, in uh, it. Yes. 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 That's the, that's the, the sacred geometry oracle. The 33 sacred, sacred geometry oracle cards are the, are the kind of symbolic keystone of the whole thing. And then I have the way of the golden section, which is out and the first three um, books of practical instruction. And yeah. just now I have the, um, the occult philosophy workbook, which is the first of three workbooks. Okay, so great. as currently conceptualized, it's going to be a seven volume series and it should give <clears throat> anybody who's interested in that end of, of occultism a good, solid training course to work with. Well, we'll keep an eye on that as well. Um, when we go back to the fellowship of the Hermetic Rose now, mm-hmm. um, you also mentioned, if I remember well, in those posts, of course, that people for initiations and also in between can meet and do this work, not solitary, mm-hmm. but in the group, in a temple. Um, so oh, yeah. what about that? Okay. Um, because this is not an organization, you don't have to get a charter from somewhere. <laughs> if you have reached a certain point in the initiation process, you're qualified to organize a, a temple. If you have, uh, you, if you have received, you have, you have self-initiated to the teacher grade, mm-hmm. the four, the fourth, the fourth grade, um, you can then, um, fifth grade, excuse me, you fifth can then establish your own temple and mm-hmm. you need, um, a total, if you want to do just the, the solstice and equinox rituals, you need three other people. If you want to do initiation rituals, you need four other people who have to right. be of certain grades and so on. Mm-hmm. But it, the book version will get, it does give all of the necessary rituals, all the instructions and so on for performing those rituals. So, um, if enough people get interested in this, we, it could very easily reach a point where in, you know, at least if you have to live near a temple, instead of doing the thing of self-initiation, you can simply get in touch with the temple, um, mm-hmm. do the necessary work, come in for your initiations and, you know, get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Will that happen? I have absolutely no idea. I think it'd yeah. be fun, but yeah. you know, the, yeah. Yeah, sure. the, the magical, magical launch work is not for everybody. 
Yeah, exactly. What about the egregore? The egregore will it build up like that, or also only well, solitary work? We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll just see. have to see. Um, yeah. The way that I that I've set it up, it should the egregore. First of all, the egregore will build a lot in the course of just people doing the solitary work. That's yeah. already happening. If you if you do these practices, and especially if you do the do the degree rituals now or even just the temple opening and closing, you can feel it as more people start practicing it because yeah, that sure. egregore is starting to power up. And so if this does take off and you end up with, you know, some thousands of people around the world doing this stuff, the egregore is going to be gradually ratcheting upwards. If we yeah. then get temples, you know, who knows what, it's, of, it's of an course. experiment. Of course, no, exactly. well, I get the impression that after people listen to this episode, there might be a, a couple who who will be, joining the egregore and enforcing the egregore i hope so i i hope i hope that i hope it works for them yeah absolutely you know the 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 thing one of the things that john always used to say is that you know the traditions are made for people people are not made for the traditions what matters is not what happens to you to the temple or what happens to the egregore it's what happens to the individuals do they become better and stronger and wiser people that's the thing that matters Yes. And as a counterpoint to that, I have to read, you know, as I said, I would this one posting uh, from one of, of the blog, uh, the blog uh, postings of yours, the, the answer, the answer of one of the, of the, of the readers who said, and I, I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to say to that. Um, he said, I'm surprised by how reasonable the entire initiation process seems to be. I didn't expect occult training to have as a final goal to produce individuals that can stand on their own, be balanced and align themselves with higher principles and currents of manifestation to benefit themselves and others. Well, what do you answer that? Well, um, all I can say is the fact that that's not obvious shows that the Western esoteric tradition has a lot of work still to do on itself because <laughs> yeah. that should have been right out there all the time. That's what it's about. That's what it's all about. The goal, exactly. Yeah. The goal of occult training is to create the individual it's to, or to specifically to give the individual the tools to create himself or herself to become, to stand on their own two feet, to interact with the powers of the cosmos, to make the world better and make themselves better. And, you know, there's so much, beauty and joy and magic that can be brought into existence if we have individuals like that. And so little of it has been done because we have an individual shortage. We have no shortage of human beings, but so many of them are just stuck in mass mindedness. They're just sort of lurching along, doing as they're told, believing whatever the idiots on the media tell them, Mm. um, believing what they were told in school or what they were told in church and just wasting their lives. And, you know, I know, I know we all have to do that for, for some incarnations, but you know, there's a lot of us out there. If just a small number of, of, of people who would really embrace their own individuality, who would embrace their capacity for power and wisdom and love, and we could accomplish amazing things in this world. Absolutely. The world needs it. Let's not forget oh, yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, John Michael Greer, thank you so much for your time. Um, I can't let you go before you tell us what's on your tablets for the next few months. I'm sure you prepare a few other things, not only the fellowship and 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 the other fellowship, mm-hmm. but um, anything else you would like to tell oh, us yeah. about? Well, let's see. I've um, I don't think I have any 
any more books for immediate release. There's there's some there's a stack of things further down the road, but we'll see mm-hmm. when those actually hit. I'm I'm working on a series of occult mystery novels, which uh, actually uh, will cover a lot of basic occult training and it, the ideas and so on. Mm-hmm. And the first of those will be out next next spring, next summer, something like that. Excellent. And um, but the other the other thing, of course, is that as soon as fairly shortly after, I'm going to take a break and catch my breath. But after I finished posting everything from the um, Fellowship of the Hermetic Rose, um, the next thing on the agenda is the Modern Order of Essenes, which was one of the other orders I received oh. from John. There's a lot of material on um, spiritual healing. And that's something I think a lot of us could use learning about right now. Absolutely. And so that's going to be the next project. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my goal is to get the material John passed on to me into as many hands as possible. And so I'm going to have to figure out some way to do attunement ceremonies so that people, because this has like, this has attunements the way that you have in Reiki, you know, you have to get zapped by the Reiki practitioner and so on. Mm-hmm. There are ways to do it at a distance, but I'm going to have to schedule the time and things like that so people can do it. Mm-hmm. So, but that's the, that's the big project. I'm already starting to put together notes for that. Wow, that's that sounds like great and, as you say, important projects. It's, it's well, awesome stuff. Absolutely. Thank you once again, and I'm sure we're going to meet on the South Hermes podcast again when things like that or others will happen. And well, thanks mm-hmm. for your time this time, and. Um, Good luck with everything and have fun in the break that you take now to and, and <laughs> recharge the battery. Catch my breath. Yes. Well, thank you very much for having me on again. I always enjoy it. Thank you. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.
Lakota Lullaby, sung by Alexia Evelyn, a young Brazilian artist, uh, which I believe uh, does an excellent job with that. So this was all for today, so to speak. This was our great interview on the Fellowship of the Hermetic Rose with John Michael Greer. And of course, as always, we did not just limit ourselves to talking about the Fellowship. Uh, it's always so great to speak to John here. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here with me. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the show just as I did, doing it for you, making it for you, producing it for you. Thank you for maybe considering once again to become a patron. And thank you for becoming a patron if you decide you would like to do that. It's $1 per show you can start. And also that is really helpful if you do it and the more of you do it, the better. Thank you. Okay, so that's all for today. And I would like to, uh, I would like to say thank you to everybody who listened, to everybody who participated in the show. Uh, and I would also like to invite you to come back, to come back next week. Next week, my guest will be Richard Grossinger, Richard Grossinger, who recently published a book, uh, which is called Dream Times and Thought Forms. And we look at the Australian Aboriginal Dream Time. We look at uh, theories of cosmogenesis on even UFOs. So it's, it's quite a wide subject. And we speak with Richard also as his role is also being the curator of sacred planet books. And um, he there has collected a very interesting list of, of authors and books and subjects we are going to have an overview on. So Richard Grossinger will be my guest next week. We, I hope you will enjoy that as well. So please come back next week. And for this week, I wish you all a good time. Take care of yourself. Uh, it's crazy times we are living in, but I wish you all take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.